Hello, and welcome to this special edition of the Thames and Hudson podcast. In this audio trilogy, archaeologist and author David Miles invites us to explore the prehistoric monuments and landscapes around his home in rural France. For more information on David Miles's books, head to our website, thamesandhudson.com. It seems so deserted. It seems to me in some ways it's about as close as you can get to the Neolithic. The sun's going down right in front of me. It's actually shining right through the entrance of the stone circle and shining right through the monument and illuminating it. I'm archaeologist David Miles. I've worked on archaeological projects across the world, and now I live in a rural part of southern France, the Cévennes. I'm interested in how aspects of human experience today can be understood by seeing how they arose out of our deep past. In these three episodes, I'm exploring the French countryside around my home to examine three themes that still shape us, In the last episode, we surveyed the idea of land. In this episode, we're gazing up at the sky. They were dark, really dark brown. And they were very, very soft. You, you could literally go up to them and you could actually break bits off with your fingers. John Lorimer is a local archaeologist from Norfolk. In 1998, at home next to the sea on the East Anglian coast, he found one of the most important archaeological discoveries of our time. The actual circle was oval or egg-shaped and this tree trunk was dead in the centre of it. And that is, you don't get that in nature. John had found what soon came to be called Sea Henge. Dated to the very late 3rd millennium BC, its timbers had been hauled into place using ropes made of honeysuckle. And there was even a little twig on the central stump with an acorn. The site where it was built 4,000 years ago was not a beach then, but a salt marsh. Later, peat and sand buried and protected the monument. Then, the rising tides and storms ripped away the protective layers and brought it to the surface. As Chief Archaeologist for English Heritage, I was responsible for the funding and conservation of the new find. Druids, neo-pagans and some local people were unhappy about our decision to relocate the structure. But erosion of the peat, which had blanketed and protected Seahenge for millennia, would rapidly have led to its disappearance. When the results of radiocarbon dating were compared with the annual tree rings, a very specific date emerged. The upturned tree trunk was felled between April and June of 2049 BC. 
So what was Seahenge for? Monuments mark the landscape, but they also enter into a dialogue with the sky. Of the various theories as to Seahenge's function, several involve the heavens. One possible scenario is that a corpse was placed on the upturned roots to be devoured by birds in what is sometimes called a sky burial. Certain beliefs can be found across a wide area, from Lapland to Greece. It's common to express the concept of three cosmic layers or tiers, the surface world we live in, the underworld and the skies. The half-buried upside-down tree at Seahenge may well represent these three tiers and it's made symbolically even richer by being inverted. The tree's crown now points to the underworld, its deep roots to the sky. What did the sky mean to the makers of Seahenge? What did they make of weather, wind, stars, birds? And the big question, how much did prehistoric people know about the sky's workings? From the Enlightenment onwards, antiquarians realised that the mysterious megaliths of Western Europe had cosmic significance. Antiquarian William Stukeley started to figure out the cosmic connections at Stonehenge from the early 1720s. In 1874, Henri de Clezier suggested the stones of Karnak in Brittany were oriented towards solar risings and settings at the solstices and equinoxes. Sometimes attempts are made to argue that such monuments functioned as an instrument of the kind we might use today, a scientific tool with one clear use. In 1963, astronomer Gerald Hawkins argued that Stonehenge is arranged in a large number of cosmic alignments and could be used to predict eclipses. A distinguished astronomer, Hawkins nevertheless made some basic archaeological errors in his research. And while his supercomputer theory connected with the public, many of my colleagues gave it pretty short shrift. These monuments, in fact, had multiple functions. Most likely, ceremonies accompanied these important points in the celestial calendar. Music, feasts, stories... Occasions to exchange the genes of both humans and animals. But these societies were pre-literate, so we can only interpret the material remains. And collective beliefs can influence behaviour in ways difficult for archaeologists to guess from such remains. For example, Aubrey Burl, the late expert on British stone circles, interpreted the saucer-shaped marks, often cut into rocks, as symbols of the moon. He may be right, but it may not be a sign universally known as such. Just to the northwest of where I live in the Cévennes are the famous cave paintings at Lascaux. These images were mainly produced at the tail end of the last ice age. They're another good example of how hard it is to read pre-literate societies from their art or objects. Certain dots and points in the paintings at Lascaux are said to indicate stars, the celestial triangle of Vega, Deneb and Altair. There may be, but there's no proof. We don't really know. What I do know 
is that at this time of year, in October, the first bright star I see, a mere 21 light-years away, is Altair. It's quite a thought that someone on this same spot, five or six thousand years ago, would have seen the sky much as I'm seeing it now. but it's still got that slight suggestion of, of mist. We have up there Jupiter and Saturn, both up there together. Can you see the bright one and then the less bright one? Right one on the left. It's an October evening in the Savannah. Martin Young is a Scottish-born astronomer who lives nearby. Yes, an aeroplane just passed in front of the moon. Yeah, there you go. Red flashing light. Yeah. Not for a minute, you'd have gone around the back. <laughs> the sun went down about an hour ago. It's chilly up here in this field. That's supposed to kip into there. The new moon is lit by Earthlight. I practice this in the dark more often. There we are. And there's a 360-degree view of the sky. Mars is setting now. Yeah, so, so we've got a good of war. But he's, he's actually looking quite red now, isn't it? It is remarkably red, yes. Yeah. yes. An early Bronze Age monument like Seahenge seems remote and mysterious. But centuries before Seahenge was built, the Sumerians in what is now Iraq and the Egyptians had advanced knowledge of astronomy. We know this because they wrote that knowledge down. Societies that had developed writing give us a much clearer picture of their astronomical capabilities. 300 years before Seahenge, the pharaoh Unas was reigning in Egypt's old kingdom. The pyramid built for Unas was the first to be inscribed with the funerary rituals known as the pyramid texts. Prepared by his priests, they were an instruction manual to Unas's soul, how to pass through the underworld and then reach immortality in the sky. The aim was to reach the so-called imperishable stars. These can be seen near the North Celestial Pole. They're imperishable because they're visible all year round. It's called the summer cloud. And you can see the Milky Way, and right ah, in the yes. middle of the Milky Way is the Northern Cross. Yeah. It's generally believed that in literate societies, such as Egypt and Sumeria, Astronomy is How more sophisticated. The, Milky Way. The, Milky Way. the ability to write enabled stargazers to retain and process more information. Well, it's about 100,000 light years in diameter. This view is being challenged. Recent work by the archaeoastronomer Clive Ruggles, for example, finds evidence that the Hawaiians developed complex astronomical knowledge despite not having writing. We don't need to go as far as Egypt or Hawaii to find a place that reveals something about how prehistoric farmers here, in what is now France, saw the sky. A place that hints at how huge social and technological changes drove a new way of interacting with the heavens. This is the most beautiful landscape, uh, looking across it. it. You could almost be somewhere like the Serengeti Park. Gwyn and I have come up to one of my favourite places in the Savannah. It's scrubland uh, for miles and miles. The high plateau called the Coast de Blandas, the 
that we visited in the first episode, land. Should be over to the left. Yep, here it is. It's got a ring of oak trees around it now, but uh, here we can see the great slab that forms the top of a passage grave. This tomb has never been properly investigated by archaeologists, but it's certainly Neolithic, and I would estimate it's probably somewhere between four and 3,000 BC, that sort of date. This passage is narrow, just wide enough for a person to go down. When you get to the end, we can see the dark chamber of the burial. The passage grave is facing west, so the setting sun would have shone down this passage. You have to duck, get inside. It's pretty dark. From about 2900 BC, the building of chambered tombs like this starts to tail off. As agriculture continued to transform this part of Europe, a new type of monument was arising. Bigger, more ambitious, more communal, the stone circle or circular earthwork. Just like the one down the road from here that we visited in the last episode. The Cromlech de la Cam de Pérarine. Its stone uprights mark out a huge circular arena on the scrubland. The diameter is impressive. When Gwyn and I came up here to make that recording for the first episode, it was June. The whole of the tableland here was brimming with birdsong. Now, at dusk on this October evening, it's almost totally silent. The sun's going down right in front of me. It's actually shining right through the entrance of the stone circle and shining right through the monument and illuminating it. And the stones of the circle and the stone in the centre are all throwing long shadows. The passage tomb I squeezed myself into was enclosed, private. This stone circle is open, public. Here you can imagine farming communities coming together public gatherings, ceremonies, walking to this spot along the trackways that still mark the plateau. Because wherever agriculture created larger, more complex societies, farmers sought a new cosmology, one that reflects the seasonal and diurnal whirl of the God-filled heavens, their influence on human life and the crops needed to sustain it. This cosmology suits a public arena like this one, Perfectly positioned for cosmic drama, the rising and setting of the sun and the dramatic display of the night sky. An Australian colleague of mine, the astronomer Ian Godfrey, has revealed something no one else has ever observed about this monument, deep in rural France. Using satellite imagery, he's proven that it's almost a perfect circle. The tall stone in the middle is bang in the middle. To build something so large and geometrically precise required community involvement, cooperation, and manpower. It's a lot of work, isn't it? 
Mysterious and divine, though the heavens must have seemed to these people, they connected intimately with aspects of earthly life too. The cosmic realm and the earthly realm were in dialogue. The celestial was also social. Swing round a bit. Probably move that one. In early societies, those who controlled arcane knowledge, like astronomer priests, were special. People who could make awe-inspiring predictions and observations as to the behaviour of the heavens. I, I, I think, well, because I know where to look, I think I can see a smudge. That the light from Andromeda is about two and a half million years travelling to Earth. Up there Today, the Martin can draw out from that smudge of light facts that make our heads spin. Imagine having that power in an ancient society. When things keep happening and you're foretelling them, I, I, I would get quite, quite pleased about it. You know, my goodness, I'll tell you, the moon's going to be over there tomorrow night. The sky, the higher of the three cosmic layers, is a realm that reinforced human hierarchies. It was the preserve of experts. Its practitioners combined the role of scientist and priest, who through their data and dogma imposed authority on the heavens. It's only relatively recently that the scientist and the priest started to fight each other for control of the skies. If you look very carefully, you can see two of the Galilean satellites on the right. Martin is training his telescope on the heavenly bodies that spark such a war at the dawn of modern history, the moons of Jupiter. Yes, in a really clear line. That's right. Io, Europa, Callisto and Ganymede which Galileo saw, and yeah. um, the church said he didn't see them because they, everything went round the earth. Religious people don't have authority unless they keep it. Galileo won in the long term. Because under his breath he said, and yet they move. For most people in the global north now, the electric city has wiped out this cosmic layer above our heads. In the Cévennes, the sky is rather more difficult to ignore. It's now an international dark sky reserve, the largest in Europe. So it's hard to go out onto my balcony at night on an October evening like this and not look up. 7pm and the moon has risen above the highest pine tree. 7.10, low to the west, in the still bright sky, Venus appears. 7.55 p.m., a fuzzy image of Saturn, now Vega, now Altair. skies, something else in the Cévennes is harder to ignore too, seasonal change. The orange of the pumpkins, the reds, red chilies. It's market day in our town. I bumped into a friend, Aline, who's half French and half Yorkshire. Even the potatoes look good. <laughs> yes. uh, not like a good potato, is it? To the men and women who built the tomb and circle on the coast of Blandas, the sky hung just above them. 
the moment she's got pumpkins and onions. She has lovely. Its presence was both mysterious and practical. Its gods directed their fate and its weather conditioned their food. Which is a tradition of this event. There are any number of reasons why, with the threat of climate change rearing over us, we should once again be looking up at the sky with respect. The Cévennes lies at a meteorological junction. Hot winds from the Sahara meet the cooler westerlies from the Atlantic. The spectacular autumn storms that this clash produces are so famous across France, they even have their own name. Dimanche, le lendemain de la crue exceptionnelle de l'Hérault. Les épisodes Sévenol ne sont pas rares à cette période de la France. Il s'agit donc de l'épisode Sévenol qui survient dans les. The build-up to the episode Sévenol begins in the late summer. Clouds like giant anvils gather. Bolts of lightning stitch earth and sky together, and the rain falls in impenetrable sheets. The rivers thunder and slide over the rocks. Afterwards, blankets of mist lie over the forest to rise slowly like wisps of smoke back into the heavens to once again form cloud clusters. The turmoil of the skies makes me think about Patrick, the shepherd we met in the last episode, out in all weathers, sometimes leading his flocks by starlight and moonlight. Like the herders of the Neolithic, modern shepherds have an intimacy with the sky that most of us will never experience. Patrick told us how, in the June heat wave this year, the mountain storm brought a cataclysm down on his flock. So in several minutes, it can go from 40 degrees to what was at 8 degrees, and at the same time, you can get hit by hailstones the size of rocks. And Patrick's practical relationship with the sky is also, as he explains, an emotional one. I feel a great sense of humility. I'm just this small thing between the earth and the sky, both of which are capricious. What can I do other than live between these two forces? Living between forces sounds curiously similar to those cosmic layers detectable in ancient religions and at Seahenge. We know the sky enabled humans to mark time, and with knowledge of time comes both an awareness of how our lives are finite, how there might be something beyond time, beyond ourselves. Listen to this autumnal chorus in our valley. The 
migratory birds are gone for the winter, as they must. On spring evenings, the chorus is different. We have our special visitors. The nightingales in the trees and shrubs by the river. They remind me of my link with this house and garden, one that goes back many years. The nightingales are more than just seasonal markers. They and the swifts and the house martins fill me with joy as they swoop through the valley. But mixed with this is apprehension. Next spring, we'll await the return of these migratory birds with anxiety. They're highly vulnerable to environmental change. Last year, erratic late frosts in France played havoc with crops and ecosystems. Such uncertainties could be fatal for our returning birds, already struggling with the dearth of insects. Their failure to return one spring would feel like the death of a deeply loved relative. It would be a rupture between ourselves and the sky.